Welcome to Back to the Bins. We're so glad you could join us. Whether you're a brand new listener or you've been listening from the very beginning, we appreciate your patronage and hope you'll continue coming back each and every week for more comic book back issue goodness. I am Scott Gardner, and please join me in welcoming to this show my good friend Todd Grady, who goes by Fleabeard on the comicforums.com. How's it going, Todd? Doing great. How about you? Hey, it's doing pretty good, pretty good. I'm very excited to have you joining me tonight. Thanks for having me. Hey, no problem. And let me see. I am going first tonight. And this for this one, we're going back to May of 1997. This is Marvel Comics Bug number one. Now, I talked briefly about this. Oh, gosh, I can't even remember what episode it was. Um, it was back a while when I, I reviewed an issue of the Micronauts. I think it was number 13. And I just mentioned that I had, you know, this bug number one. And there was some speculation about, you know, was bug part of the of the Marvel Universe post the Micronauts and all that kind of thing. And it just put me in mind of this book that I really wanted to read it and check it out and what it was all about and that sort of thing. So I finally got around to reading it. Anyway, this one is written by Todd DeZago with art by, and here we go. This is one of those nitpicks of mine again where you've got all these artist names that you can't friggin' pronounce. Exactly. But, you know, I mean, why, what happened to like Jones and Smith and Williams and stuff for artists? But anyway, we've got this Derek, I have no idea how you pronounce this. It's A-U- C-O-I-N. So it's like Aucoin. Aucoin? Aucoin? Yeah, I have no idea. He also worked on the cover along with somebody that's just credited as Dell. It just says Aucoin Dell 96 on the cover, but there's no internal credits, you know, for that. I don't know if it's an inker or what. So sorry, Mr. or Mrs. Dell, whoever you are. I have no idea. I have no information on that person. The, uh, Inks are by Rich, again, there's another name, I don't know how you pronounce it, F-A-B-E-R, Faber, Faber, I don't know, and Ralph Cab- Cabrera. I'm changing all these names to Smith right now. <laughs> Just go by the last initial, yeah, Ralph there you C. Go. <laughs> Ralph C. And original cover price on this one was $2.99. Beautiful uh, introductory page in the beginning, it's... Uh, it's just a little thank you thing from Todd DeZago, the uh, the writer. But the splash is drawn by uh, Pat Broderick, who I believe did some work on the Micronauts way back in the day. But it's just a really nice, uh, nice little splash page, almost like a you know welcome by the author type of thing. And we get right into the story, and we see um, a nihilist is trying to uh, blast his way into this weird cube looking thing. And what it is, is it's the several top floors of the fantastic fours headquarters. And I don't know if this was the Baxter building at the time, or if this was the four freedoms plaza or what headquarters it was exactly. It doesn't say it just says fantastic four headquarters, but apparently if they're off earth or if they're missing for enough, you know, for a long enough period of time that their headquarters projects itself into the negative uh, negative zone, which I thought was actually a pretty awesome idea. So it's floating there. It looks kind of like a Rubik's Cube floating in space or something, and a nihilist comes up, and he's trying to blast his way into it. Hmm. And he's intent on getting inside because he knows that Reed Richards has all these you know awesome gadgets and things inside. He finally manages to get in, and he says, Ah, there, the device I seek. And he uses his cosmic rod 
to absorb time warping power from this thing. And you never get a good look at the thing, but I'm kind of thinking that it might have been Dr. Doom's time platform. I'm not really sure. It, it never really explains. But anyway, he does this, but he miscalculates or something, and not only does he absorb the time-bending power, but then he himself gets sucked into the power that the, the cosmic rod now possesses. So would the lesson there be, be careful where you stick your cosmic rod? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> careful with that cosmic rod, pal. You can put an eye out with that thing. So then we switch to the microverse and homeworld. And apparently, these dudes are kind of like the Star Wars guys because they can't catch a freaking break. Now, you know, they're still fighting for their freedom, and, you know, there's still all these epic battles going on. We see uh, Commander Ron and Marionette, and then suddenly, on a, on a really beautiful two page spread, we see Bug, and he's, you know, beating the hell out of the enemy soldiers and stuff. Suddenly, a giant like whirlpool vortex wormhole type of thing opens in the skies over homeworld and bug gets sucked up into the sky and up into this vortex thing and like poofs out of existence and you turn the page and he poofs back into existence and he is right alongside a nihilus and Annihilus is going on and on on you know a lot of exposition about how he's now become the master of all time and space thanks to his cosmic rod and he's you know just really laying it all out so that Bug is very quickly brought up to speed on exactly what's going on and then they both pop out of existence again and they pop back in and then uh, they become aware of each other at this point you know uh, Annihilus becomes aware that Bug is following him around. And he gives him, you know, a very dismissive, you know, backhand and slaps him away. And Bug gets knocked into a spider's web. Now, they have, uh, Bug has figured out that he's back on Earth at this point. He recognizes the, the trappings of planet Earth because he's been here before. And they are both at, like, micronaut size. So they're very, very small. They're like insect size. So this spider you know, is looking at Bug like, you know, it's lunchtime. And Bug manages to use his uh, energy lance and zaps the spider, and the spider falls, and we see it fall into these uh, this energy discharge from this machine. And Bug goes, you know, back into his fight with Annihilus, and as they poof out of existence, we see the spider fall onto the hand of Peter Parker and bite him. And then, mm. <laughs> yeah... So then we see Annihilus and Bug pop back into existence again, and this time they're buzzing around uh, a young man sitting in his hot rod playing his harmonica, and as they have their little fight at microscopic size, you know, Bruce Banner comes up and pushes Rick Jones into the, uh, the ditch, you know, that, and then the, the uh, gamma blast goes off and all that. They poof out of existence, and their battle resumes, and now they're in the back of a box truck in midtown Manhattan that's full of all these canisters that just say Ajax Labs on them. And they're fighting and, and really starting to, to get much more intense in their battle because now at this point, Bug realizes he needs to get his hands on this cosmic rod in order to get back to where he belongs. And, of course, Annihilus is very intent that he's not going to get that rod. So as they fight, they knock over all these canisters, 
and there's an energy discharge that blasts the back of the uh, the truck open, and one of the canisters roll, rolls out. And oh, wait, you know, what happens next? Oh, you know, this this is the whole thing with uh, young Matt Murdock pushing you know the old man out of the way and getting blinded by the canister, and and of course creating the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles too. Don't forget about that. Exactly. So then we. Uh, we cut again to them, you know, poofing in and out of existence. And this time they, they come back into existence on a dark night, it says. And we see Bug has finally gained possession of the cosmic rod. And as he's kind of thinking, all right, well, I've got this thing. Now what do I do with it? Suddenly a bat comes out of the sky, sees him as lunch, you know, just like the spider did, starts to swoop at him. And Bug ducks out of the way and the bat goes through this big picture window you know, and and basically lands at the feet of a of a man who's sitting in this big overstuffed armchair, and you know, it's a nice little aside to you know Bruce Wayne and uh, you know I shall become a bat and all that. It was pretty cool. Nice little. I, I like that they worked a little DC thing in there. I thought sure. that was neat. And uh, as he's watching all that happen, and he says, you know, gee, I hope that guy's going to be okay. A nihilist gets the drop on him, and they poof out of existence again. They poof back into existence in um, in Central Park in New York, and this was the only moment of this book where I thought it misfired because by this point I got what they were going for, and I thought it was a lot of fun, and I was really enjoying it. But this one, eh, this one doesn't work with the tone of the book. They actually end up at the picnic, and and they're basically ant size, and they wind up in like fighting amongst like picnic sandwiches and slices of cake and stuff that all these ants are at this picnic. And it's the picnic that the, that Frank Castle took his family to where they get massacred. And then, you know, he later becomes the punisher. That's not funny, you know? And I was like, Whoa, that one doesn't, that's not fitting the same tone as the rest of these. So I thought that one was a little bit out of, out of place in this. So they poof in and out of existence again. And then uh, this time, because they are insect size, they almost get eaten by Frog Thor, which I thought was absolutely hysterical. I love Frog Thor. I always thought he was really cool. They poof in and out of existence a few more times. And I'm not going to cover every one of them, but the only other one that was really cool, I thought, was uh, there's a picture of uh, Tony Stark sitting in the dark, you know, and he's got you know several days growth of beard and his hair's all nasty looking, and you know you can tell he's on a real bender. And while he's sitting there, they poof out of existence and fight, you know, in this this bug bug size that they're at. And he watches them fighting. And then when they poof out of existence again, he's like, okay, that's it. I quit. And it shows him, you know, dumping out the, the bottle of liquor that he's been dipping into. They also have a hand in the creation of Wolverine. Uh, Doctor Strange, something to do with Captain America that I didn't recognize, with Beast turning himself into the blue fuzzy Beast, and they also, <laughs> this one was really good, they're buzzing around um, the dinner table of the Inhumans, and they buzz uh, Black Bolt's face, and he finally has enough and swats at them and says, scram, and then says, uh-oh. And then <laughs> it's like his palace comes tumbling down, which is pretty cool. 
so they finally the the resolution of the story is that Bug gets the upper hand. They wind up back in the negative zone moments before Annihilus was able to get his hands, uh, or actually able to break into the Fantastic Four's headquarters. They're actually back in time just a little bit. And what he does is he's able to rig up this little scheme to where every time that Annihilus succeeds in breaking inside, he's instantly teleported right back outside again. So because he's done this and basically these events never happened, he winds up back in uh, the microverse, but with memories of everything that happened. And Annihilus on the last page is stuck where he breaks into the Fantastic Four headquarters several times only to be instantly popped right back outside. And eventually he's like, oh, forget it. And he just flies away at the end. It was fun. I mean, it was it was a little goofy and everything, but the art was really cool. It's very '90s style art, but it was still pretty cool. It was a nice little, you know, one and done. Nothing important happened or whatever, but it was just I liked the lighthearted tone of it. I liked you know the little continuity asides, you know, to the to the origins of so many different characters, particularly a DC character, which I thought was really cool, except for that one misstep with the Punisher. It's just it's. You know, it's good, clean fun. I would say that I think that uh, even back when this would have come out, that two ninety nine is way too much for something like this. But I'm sure that I snagged it somewhere for probably. I would think that for something like this, if I saw it around, I'd, well, I wouldn't pay more than like a quarter for it. So I'm guessing I probably paid like a quarter for it. Yeah, I was going to say that's a pretty high cover price for, for the mid-90s. Yeah. For, you know, for something that has... You know, no relevance, if you know what I mean. You know, it's right, it, it's a one shot. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, it doesn't owe anything to. I'm sure it's never referenced, and you know, there was no major plot point. You know, that that's going to be called back. It didn't resolve anything that was left undone from Micronauts. So, you know, this is something that is easily skipped and never read, and you're still going to be able to follow the history and story of the bug, you know? So, well, yeah. And it has no, no bearing on Marvel continuity or Micronauts continuity, either one. Exactly. Yeah, so, yeah, two ninety nine, especially back in the day, yeah, a little bit much. I'm, I'm surprised that that wasn't, you know, some, one of those cheaper releases just to, I don't know, for whatever <laughs> whatever purpose. Make, make some cash off the, uh, off the Micronauts mm-hmm. stories once again. Yeah, I don't know if this was something that they put out. You know, sometimes something like this comes out, and whether it's a lot of fun and really good or whether it's just god-awful, sometimes I I have to try to guess at what the the behind-the-scenes thinking on it was. And this is one of those things where I look at it and I go, well, you know, I enjoyed it, but what what ultimately was the purpose of it? And I kind of wonder if this was their attempt to... I don't know, bring this character back, maybe test the waters to see if they could do a, a, a bug solo book or a bug miniseries, or I almost got sort of an ambush bug feel from it. So was this, att- you know, was this an attempt by Marvel to create their version of an ambush bug kind of character that they could have little comedy specials from time to time? Or so? I really don't know. Well, bug was, bug was always the, I guess, the most lighthearted character in the Micronauts comics anyway. Right. Mm-hmm. And he always was kind of the, I don't want to say the comic relief, but he was the most, uh, the most lighthearted of any of the Micronauts characters. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that, you know, that tone is, is here. He, he, you know, he feels very true, you know, to his original, uh, Micronauts series roots. You know, they didn't, they didn't 
attempt to to mess with that formula at all. He he very much reads as a continuation of the same character, even with the more comedic spin, you know, in this story. But right. yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And you know, if they if they did something like this, you know, with him again, I, I would check it out. I, I I thought it was pretty fun. That's all I got for this one. What do you what do you bring in today? Well, what I got is uh, I dug through <clears throat> and actually pulled out what is one of the few surviving comics of my uh, my childhood collection. For some reason, I, I'm one of those guys that lost track of quite a few of my childhood comics. Uh. But uh, what I've got is Captain America, which is actually Captain America and the Falcon, which was a, a run during the 70s. Uh-huh. Uh, number 208 from April of 1977. Sweet. We got a cover price of 30 cents. And uh, this is edited, written, and drawn by Jack Kirby, which uh, I know a lot of people kind of go both ways on Kirby. I happen to love Kirby art. This one is inked by Frank Giacoa. Mm -hmm. Yep, again, we've got two issues by him. Uh, Colored by G, no first name, just G, Roussos. So nice big uh, Jack Kirby cover. With Captain America, some uh, as yet unnamed, almost native-looking woman, and some big green or uh, red beastie popping up out of the uh, out of the water at him. <laughs> the initial page, you've got this big splash. The River of Death is the name of this issue, with Cap walking down a uh, the the wooded side of a river. Some nice big red monster peeking up from behind a rock. Cap seemingly unaware of him. The introductory text tells us that Cap is wandering around in Central America after escaping from a, a unknown prison complex. So he's trying to find his way out. Next sequence is a nice big double-page splash page with this, uh, this creature bursting out, taking Cap by surprise, knocking him on his ass. And over the next few panels, the, the beast completely owns Cap, knocks him down, takes him out. They are suddenly interrupted by gunfire. The beast is not uh, not damaged by the gunfire, but is run off by the by the racket, and the gunfire is coming from what seems to be Nazis. Hmm. Not in Central America. Central American Nazis. I hate Central American Nazis. <laughs> but uh, you know they don't, they don't actually have you know any good Nazi markings on them. But these guys are are obviously drawn in in that vein. So they run the beast off, and this is obviously the group that he is uh, recently escaped from. So they've they've caught back up to him. He's now in a weakened state. So they take advantage of that, capture him, get him up against the tree. They're pointing, pointing guns at him, tell him they're going to take them back to his commandant. So Cap's, uh, Cap's not doing too good at this point. We um, cut to a meeting of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. Of course, all these guys are not in typical S.H.I.E.L.D. uniforms. I'm really not sure how they fall into the S.H.I.E.L.D. organization. They keep calling this one guy the director, although he is not, uh, or they keep calling him chief. So he's not the director of S.H.I.E.L.D. This is not, uh, not Nick Fury by any means. But they are discussing the re- recent resurgence of monsters. There's these freaks they're finding uh, all over the world, and they've got File 116, which is keeping track of all these freaks. So mid-conversation, they get uh, interrupted, and they get interrupted by Layla, who is the Falcon's wife. She's very distraught, has learned of the disappearance of Captain America, Wants to know where he's at, wants to know uh, where her husband is at, because apparently he is out wandering the earth looking for Cap. <laughs> so she's she's uh, totally distraught, and they're giving her the, the, ma'am, just calm down. They're doing their job. 
the good guys always come back. We cut to the Falcon flying over some mountain range in the middle of nowhere, and he's actually thinking to himself, you know, I'm flying at random places in the earth looking for Captain America. What the hell am I doing? But it just so happens he spots some huge nest from some obviously freakish monster who has built a nest. And that actually is the only appearance of Falcon in this entire Captain America and the Falcon issue. (laughs) We cut back to uh, Central America, and for some reason, you know, within the course of, of the two pages that we were off of the Captain America story, Cap has totally recovered his strength from the Fishman attack. So he busts out, starts whipping some Nazi ass. In the midst of, uh, of this fight, someone throw, you know, he, he breaks away, gets a stick of dynamite thrown at him. He falls down a pit. So he's now at the bottom of the pit. Nazis are all around the top of the pit. They're getting ready to roast him. The commandant shows up, grabs a flamethrower. The, uh, the unnamed woman from the cover now is in the background. And she has obviously some misgivings about roasting Cap when he's down in a hole. So she's voicing her opinion about this. She's told to shut up, picks up a knife, throws it at the commandant's hand, knocks the flamethrower out of his hand. I, I have no idea why she's got sympathy for Cap other than, you know, Steve Rogers is just a, a damn good-looking guy. <laughs> so the commandant chucks her in the hole with Steve. What better, you know, what better place for her? I'll roast them both. So just as the commandant's getting ready to, to turn them both in the, into crispy critters, what happens but the big red fish beastie shows back up. And uh, from their nice little now safe place at the bottom of the pit, they can hear all kinds of racket going on upstairs, Nazis being eaten. So Captain America pulls a MacGyver move and picks up all these sticks that are at the bottom of the uh, pit and uses his shield to bash them into the side of the pit and make a cool little ladder to climb up with. (laughs) They get up, dead Nazis everywhere. The Commandant's dead in the river. And then uh, at that instant, roar, the fish beast comes back. So they're trying to kick the fish beast's ass, get a typical uh, shield throw out of the cap. The girl joins in, starts hitting him with a big stick. They're obviously not making any progress. This guy is, uh, is, is pretty damn tough. And at that moment, we hear, whee! Not sure what that sound effect is. Some kind of a, a dog whistle, apparently. <laughs> and the beast turns tail and walks back into the river, swims away. So obviously, the, uh, the, the cap and the unnamed woman are... are a little confused at this point. They hear a, uh, a voice from the side. We pan over to the final splash page and Arnim Zola, uh. which is, this is apparently the first appearance of Arnim Zola, is standing there with a, a remote control device of some sort and gives a, a, a nice little uh, diatribe about his creation of the monsters and what he calls his subjects must respond. And so we obviously at this point are introduced to, to Arnim Zola, and he is behind the resurgence of these of these beasts around the world. And the the final little text block says, "Yesterday's fantasy, today's truth, tomorrow's terror." Next, Arnim Zola, bio fanatic. <laughs> it's just like it's it's a cool '70s issue of Captain America. Really nice Jack Kirby art. Like I say, I'm I'm a big fan of Jack Kirby. I know some people don't. Uh, don't take too kindly to his art. I like the heavy lines. I like the way he draws. He he really has a good sense of. Uh, I think he's got a good sense of motion in all the combat scenes. Uh, 
I've just always dug his stuff. Although I was right before this reading through the, the letters in this issue. And there apparently this time were quite a few people who were a little ticked at Jack Kirby's coming back to Marvel uh, and writing this title. He apparently took Captain America and started writing a lot of stories that did not fit at all into Marvel continuity at the time and oh, pissed wow. a lot of people off. Huh. And here we, you know, we, we take that as being a, a kind of a modern phenomenon when, a, when exactly. a star will come to a book and then just kind of fuck everything up and write it the way that they want to. And then here, you know, you, you see it right here that, you know, this was, uh, you know, something that was going on as far back as the seventies. That <laughs> yeah. In fact, here's, here's one of the quotes from one of the letters. I think someone should a inform Jack of this matter that there is uh, <laughs> what, what was it? Okay. Jack started writing the Marvel again. The plot lines of Captain America have little to do with anything with the rest of the Marvel universe. I think someone should inform Jack of this matter and ask him to rectify the situation. So there were there were definitely folks who were who were quite upset that he had taken Cap into apparently uh, started writing more classic Cap stories instead of ones that were in tune with the rest of the Marvel universe at that time. Well, I like the use of the word classic because you know I, I, I've I've made this confession before. I don't know if it was on this show or if it was on Two True Freaks, but I, I'm one of the guys you're talking about. Not a Jack Kirby fan. I respect the man immensely. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you 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 can't be a. I, I don't think you can be into comics and not respect Jack Kirby unless you're just right. crazy. But I don't consider myself a fan. However, the one exception. Well, possibly two, uh, you know, would be Captain America because it takes me right back to watching the Captain America um, animated series. And I, I say animated, you know, in air quotes, because really all it was was, was comic book pages, right. you know, and panels taken right out of the comics. And this was back, uh, you know, in the, uh, what was it, Tales of Suspense stuff. Right. They had one know. arm cut out with a pivot on it. Right, exactly. You know, yep. the, the, their lips would move when they would talk, but there was like no change. You know, in in the rest of their maybe their eyes would blink or move from side to side. But yeah, it was literally made up of panels from the comics, and you know, all of that stuff was Jack Kirby. Right. So you know, I grew up with that, and I used to run home from school, you know, just to catch that when it would be on TV. And so I'm in love with that aspect of Jack Kirby just because it really takes me back to my childhood and waiting, you know, in, in anticipation for that program. The other character that uh, just came to mind was, uh, you know, same thing with Thor. And again, you know, that goes back to that, that animated show with Thor. You know, a lot of that was drawn on the uh, the Jack Kirby stuff from uh, Journey into Mystery. So, yeah, yeah I mean... Original, that original Thor design, I th- that Jack Kirby Thor is... is- one of those iconic versions of Thor that kind of everybody recognizes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wow, you know, you blew my mind with uh, with the reveal at the end of, of Arnim Zola. I never would have guessed that his first appearance was so, you know, relatively speaking, so late in Cap yeah. history because I always thought that he was an old, old Cap villain from, like, way back. Yeah, and I got online and, and uh, you know, just looked at a couple of sources, and, and there's a couple of sources that agree that this is the this is the very first appearance of Arnim Zola. Wow, and I like him too. He's one of those just freakish looking characters that's that's oh, yeah. really awesome, you know. With nice, the, nice twisted, weird, yeah, just a bizarre, physically bizarre character. Definitely, uh, definitely a trademark Kirby design, you know, with oh, yeah. uh, you know, with the outfit and you know, no head. 
but the giant head for a body. Yeah, that's awesome, man. I love it. I love it. Uh, Well, that's all I got for this one. Yeah, me too. All right, sweet. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me right back here next week when who knows what mystery guest host will be popping by. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, and criticisms for the show via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of the comicforums.com. We are now accepting requests for guest host spots on the show, so if you'd like to join me in an episode, let me know. Also, please be sure to check out the home website for Back to the Bins at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you can find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcast.com. Take a moment to drop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and I'll see you next week.